if we were listening to the choir sing that song that all, all of our sins have been washed away, I, uh, my mind went, went back. There was a, a memory. Um, several years ago, I was in Mexico City, and I was sitting out on the hillside looking down to a, a, Catholic, uh, a Catholic church, and there were cobblestones that extended out away from the center of this large, large Catholic church. The cobblestones went out in each direction probably a half a mile. And it was going into the season of Easter. And day after day for the week preceding Easter, thousands of people would gather there at the beginning of those cobblestones and they would get down on their faces half a mile out and they would crawl on their hands and knees and elbows for a half a mile and with blood pouring off of their knees and off their elbows as they went to the center to worship and to receive the mass. And it was a mixture of Catholicism mixed with some Aztecian Indian practices as they worshiped uh, Guadalupe. It's called asceticism. It was a way to shed blood, to inflict pain upon yourself, to make yourself more worthy to the Lord as you worshiped. And I watched that day after day after day. And as we were listening to that song, I couldn't help but think of the, of the grace and the goodness of the gospel. That we don't have to shed our own blood and we don't have to inflict pain upon ourselves. Because there was enough bloodshed and enough pain inflicted upon the Lord Jesus Christ that what he did on the cross for us was sufficient Amen. and all of our sins can be washed away not because of anything we do but because of everything that he did for us that's the gospel and as Jesus died on a cross publicly and was buried in a tomb and was raised on the third day. When people stand publicly to be baptized, they are conveying, all of my sins have already been washed away. That was taken care of through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But they stand publicly to symbolically say and identify with what Paul described in Romans 6 that I'm standing publicly as Christ died publicly and I'm buried, some have referred to that water as a, as a water grave, I'm buried with Christ and I'm declaring outwardly raised to live a new life by faith in the Lord Jesus. That's the gospel and may we never take it for granted. I'm looking forward this morning to starting a a series of messages from the book of Esther. Some of you are familiar with this story. Others of you may not be so familiar, but for the next seven weeks, we're going to camp out here. And so I invite you to uh, go to the Old Testament. hope that you brought your Bible and that you bring it each Sunday. I'm kind of old school. I know lots of us use our telephones, you know, or cell phone, iPhones, but there's still something special about bringing your Bible. And so if you have your Bible with you, I hope you'll find the book of Esther. It's, uh, uh, it's uh, there. Uh, if you go to the Psalms and you go back a little ways, uh, it's go back to Job and then Esther. It's right after Ezra and Nehemiah. So Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalm, and Proverbs. So it's sandwiched right in there. And uh, we're going to spend a few weeks going through the, the book of Esther. And there are a few things that I'm hoping to achieve as we do this. One is just to teach the Bible. Um, that is always valuable, right? 
uh, to know God's word, as the psalmist said, to hide it in our hearts. I was thinking about what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 19. Everyone who obeys my word, who obeys my word and shares my word with others, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 19, 19 would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Those who obey my word and share my word with us. So we need to know the scriptures. And so I hope that we'll learn scripture as we go through this. Second, more specifically, not just to teach the Bible, but more specifically to teach about God. Uh, have, you, have you ever noticed that when you're reading your Bible, one of the things we're prone to do is we, we're reading it and we're asking ourselves, how does this apply to me? What does this say to me? What does this have to do with me? How do I apply this to my life? And certainly that's a good question, but there's a more important question. A question of first importance, and the greater question is, as we read our Bibles, what does this reveal to us about God? Who is God? How does God work? What are God's purposes? So let's learn the Bible, let's learn more about God, and then third, as we go through the story of Esther, I hope to encourage you to trust God more. To rest in him and to live by faith. There are going to be days and seasons in our lives when our faith in God is tested. Tested. Times and seasons in your life when you're not going to see God. Maybe there's some time passes where you don't hear his voice. Seasons where you sense that you're alone, that God is nowhere near you. Have, you. have you been through such a season in your life? And the temptation is to possibly abandon hope and to lose joy. And it's true that most of us will find ourselves either going into a crisis or coming out of a crisis almost all the time. That's just life. And so I pray that as we go through Esther, that we will learn the Bible, that we'll learn more about God, grow closer to God, and we'll be renewed in our faith. We're not going to get through all of this, but I want to read uh, the first chapter of Esther with you. And again, I'm not going to try to get through this whole text this morning, but um, I want to just more this morning go through the background and the history of this book, and so that we'll, do, we'll understand it better and appreciate it more. But I invite you to read with me in Esther Chapter 1, verse 1, reading through the first chapter. Just take, a, just take a minute or so. Now it came to pass in those days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, or Susa, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and all the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, and check this out, a six-month party, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven more days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. While there, there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of alabaster and turquoise and white and black marble. Pretty impressive looking place. And during the party they served drinks and golden vessels. Each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the Drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each one's pleasure. 
Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So he parties. She's going to have a party. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, you know what that means, right? He commanded Mehuman, Bista, Harbona, Bigta, Abaktha, Zither, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. And check this out. To bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. She's going to show her off. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. And the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner towards all who knew the law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina and Sethar and Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Menyakin, the seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And Memucan answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. And it's going to get bad. Look at verse 17. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes. When they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen and therefore will be there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who's better than she. And when the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. And he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. That was several years ago, I preached this message, and there was a, a family in our church, and they had a little boy. And uh, he was probably eight or nine years old, and they went home after church, and they were eating dinner. And as they were sitting around the table, they were talking about the story here, this first chapter of, of Esther. And the little boy, while they're eating, the dad said he, he was talking about it. He slammed his hand down on the king on the kitchen table. He said, we need to get our women in control. <laughs> and uh, I just, it's kind of funny. Well, I'm, I'm reading this text, and at the same time, I was thinking about that story while I was reading kind of bizarre. Let me, let me pray with you just very briefly. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word and we're grateful for the opportunity to have eyes, most of us, to see it and ears to hear it. And God, you've given us, most of us, strong, healthy bodies to respond to you in faith and to be used by you for your glory. So speak to us, we pray. Help us to understand more of who you are and how, God, you speak and desire to work in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to spend most of the time, and we're going to work through this text, um, probably more in detail starting next week, but I want to refer to a few things. And would like to take 
some time to provide some background and history to this book. And so I'm going to be a little lighter on illustration and stories and humor and a little more heavy strictly on Bible. And so those of you who really like the Bible and Bible history are going to appreciate this. And if you don't, maybe not as much. But I want to provide a little background in history. The, the entire story of Esther, or the entire story of the Old Testament, runs from Genesis to Esther. Genesis to Esther. So if you read your Bible starting in the book of Genesis and you read up to Esther, you would read 17 books. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, right? There are. <laughs> and... And so if you just read the first 17 books, Genesis to Esther, you'd get the whole story. Esther is, from a chronological standpoint, it is towards the very end of the Old Testament story. And so from creation in the book of Genesis, all the way if you go through Old Testament history to the very end where God's people, most of them are living in exile, that's when the story of Esther occurs. Second, regarding who wrote this book, we have no idea. We don't know who wrote it. A lot of people will guess that it was Mordecai uh, or it was Esther, but we really don't know who, who wrote the book. But I want to introduce you to the five main characters in the story of Esther. And so if you want to take some notes, the first character we've already seen, can, can you say Ahasuerus? All right, King Ahasuerus. He's one of the prominent characters in this story, a Persian king. And this story occurs during the third year of his 21-year reign as the Persian king. He is ruling from this capital city of Susa in Persia. And at that time, it was the Persian Empire. The Persians ruled the world. And so King Ahasuerus is the most single powerful man on the face of the earth, Ahasuerus. He's married second to a queen by the name of Vashti. Now, we don't know much about Queen Vashti, but what we do know is Vashti is a strong-minded woman. She is an independent thinker and was not afraid to go against the king. And as we'll see, it is her strong-mindedness and independent type of thinking that causes and creates the conflict in this story. So King Ahasuerus married to Queen Vashti, and then there's this third character, which we're going to meet in the story, and he is a man named Haman. Haman. Haman is a wealthy, influential character serving in the king's court. Haman, if you're looking for a villain, is that guy. He's the villain in the story. He is deceitful. He is conceited. He is an anti-Semitic. Yet Haman in the story works and manipulates circumstances and situations to put himself into a position of prominence. And he receives a promotion in the story. And then the fourth character is an older Jewish man by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai, again, a godly man living in Persia. If you have your Bible, look over with me in chapter 2. We're going to find out a little bit more about Mordecai, but again, a Jew, Jewish man, godly man living here in Persia. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. He is in Shusan or Susa, the citadel there, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So Kish is Mordecai's great-grandpa, four generations listed there. And his great-grandpa, look at verse 6, Kish was the one who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And so that means that Mordecai, if his great-grandfather was carried away from Judah into exile by the Babylonians, which was a long time ago, that means that he, as a Jew 
had never lived in Jerusalem. He was born living in Persia. So it means a lot of years had passed since this had occurred. And so that is Mordecai. And before we look at this final character of Esther, I want to just interject some history here to understand the context. This is very important to understand the book of Esther. Many years before we read this story, before it began, and if you go back into Jewish history, remember God entered into a covenant with a man named Abram who later becomes Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And you remember what God says, Abraham or Abram at that time, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you and Abram, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your family and I'm going to make you and your family great. You're going to have a lot of descendants and through your descendants, I'm going to bless all other families, all other nations of the earth. You remember that? That was right at the beginning in Genesis 12. And then you remember that certainly began to happen. God was faithful to his word. He multiplied this nation of people and they, their descendants, they became more numerous and, and in the, as the stars in the heavens and God was faithful to Abram and all his descendants. And eventually he said, and I will give you a land. And you remember the Old Testament story, how under the leadership of Joshua, after they'd come out of Egyptian slavery for 400 years and gone through the wilderness for 40 years, and then finally under Joshua, God leads his people in to possess the land that he'd promised to give them. God's faithful to his word. And then for the next 400 years, if you know Old Testament history, what happened? God's people went into the land. Each tribe got a possession of that land. The bigger tribes got more land. The smaller tribes, smaller parcels of land. And then for the next 400 years after they get into that land, God raises up judges, spiritual, mostly political or military people to, to push back the oppression of their enemies. And for 400 years, they kind of struggle. And then after that, you remember, God's people start getting a little restless and they're not content for, to live under a theocracy where God rules and they say, hey, we, as God's people, we want to be like all the other nations. We want to be like everyone else. And so we want a king. Other nations, other places have kings. We want a king too. And, and so God... Tell Samuel, they want a king, let them have a king. You remember the first king in the Old Testament, King Saul? Doesn't end so well. <laughs> Who replaces Saul? You remember? King David. Who replaces David? His son Solomon. So Saul and David and Solomon each reigned as king. Over God's people, 40 years apiece. So 120 years passed by. And then upon the death of Solomon, there's a civil war. A civil war breaks out among God's people. And the nation splits. And there's a, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And it's all about who should succeed Solomon. And it's about taxes and money and power and control. Sounds kind of relevant, doesn't it? So the northern kingdom splits. It's the larger kingdom, 10 tribes to the north. That northern kingdom is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah, two smaller tribes. Judah in the southern kingdom was where Jerusalem was. And so there's a split. And then for the next 280 years, there's a, a northern king of those 10 tribes and a Another king raised up in the south who rules the two southern tribes. So you have the northern kings and you have all these succession of kings. And if you know anything, you remember the, all of these kings mostly, for the, for the greater part, they're all evil. The northern kingdom of God's people and the southern kingdom have a common denominator. Most of all of the kings, there's a few exceptions, but for the larger part, they're evil. And you'll find a, a phrase in the Bible, and this king did more evil than the king before him. And this king was worse than his father was before him. And they sinned 
over and over against God. And so God is at work because he loves them. And so he's raising up prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah. He's, he's raising up these prophets to speak to the northern kingdom and prophets to speak into the southern kingdom to get their attention and to say to them, because they wanted to be like all the other nations and they were adopting pagan practices and pagan lifestyles and, the, and adopted the values of the world and the morality of the world. And so God, because of his love, he doesn't just abandon them or he doesn't just destroy them. He raises up these prophets and these prophets are crying out to the people, repent, repent. God's judgment is coming. God will not tolerate this forever. And the northern kingdom hardens their hearts, happy with their lifestyles. They refuse to listen and judgment falls. And in 722 BC, because of their stubborn unfaithfulness, God, the Bible says, sent. Doesn't say allowed. God sent the armies of Assyria south down to the northern kingdom and they destroy the northern kingdom. They take those 10 tribes and they pull off God's people and for the largest part make them slaves and they pull them off as exiles and take them back to the north to the Assyrian Empire. And they're exiled. They're removed from their homes and then God continued to send prophets to the southern kingdom and warn and warn and warn. What you saw happen to the north will certainly happen to the south. And they hardened their hearts and they refused to listen. And so about 150 years later, in 586 BC, God brought forth a similar judgment against the southern kingdom. And God sent this time King Nebuchadnezzar who ruled the Babylonians because after 150 years, the Babylonians had taken over the Assyrians. So they come south and they take over the southern kingdom and they, you know, some of you know the history, they destroy the temple, they destroy the walls around Jerusalem, they steal all the possessions, the gold and valuables out of the temple, and they take all of those possessions and they take all of, not all, but they take most of God's people back north with them this time to what once was Assyria, now is Babylon. And they take all of these exiles, all of God's people back north into exile, into captivity. And let me just add, so you've got a city, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, the temple's destroyed, the walls are destroyed, the, everything is in ruins. And if you know your Bible history, they don't take everyone. They don't take everyone. If anyone had some education, if they had a skill, if they had some ability, they took only those people off. And anyone who was less educated, less skilled, that was poor, they just left there in the ruins. That's what happens. These people, by this time, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, all of them taken away up in exile. And then something historically happens, just as the Assyrians fell to the Babylonians, the Babylonians fell to the Persians. Some of you heard about the Persian Median, Medio Empire of the world, one of the great civilizations, the Persians take over. She just, a little lesson in there, what happens to nations. The great nations, the great empires, the great powers of the world, the Assyrians fall and the Babylonians fall and the Persians take over. And if you, this loves some of you, advance forward. Do you remember the Persians fall to the Greeks and then the Greeks fall to the Romans? And we kid ourselves if we don't think that the United States of America could fall and collapse. And the strength, this is a side note, the strength of our nation is not who is our president, who is our governors, our senators, what size military army, how strong our economy is, all of those things have value, they're all important. But the Bible says the strength of our nation is righteousness. Righteousness, godliness is what exalts a nation. 
And then something happens, historically. When the Persians take over, there's a king named Cyrus. And this is found in Ezra 1.1. And it's also the context of our story here in Esther. When Cyrus becomes king, he's over the Persian Empire now. And all of God's people, all the Jews are living in exile for the most part. There's something happens. King Cyrus moved by God, decrees something that all of the Jews, all of the exiles now who've been living away in exile somewhere between 60 and 150 years who have been away in exile or more, he says those Jews, those exiles who want to go home are free. You can go home. Back to your to the land that God gave you, back to the promised land. Anyone that wants to go back as an exile, back to your own, to your spiritual roots, you're free to go. But what is pretty sad is if you read through the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, very few people ever went back. Under Zerubbabel, a few thousand people went back when they were given the opportunity and they weren't back and they, under Zerubbabel, they rebuilt the temple and then around a hundred years later, two more waves of Jews returned to Jerusalem and under the reforms of Nehemiah and Ezra, you remember they re rebuild the walls and Ezra reestablishes the law and the worship of the Lord. But largely, largely, very few of the Jews living which once was Assyria and then Babylonia and then Persia, very few of those Jews living in exile ever used their freedom to go back, to go back to the land that God had given them, to go back to how God was at work there, and they chose to remain in Persia. They wanted to have kings, to be like everyone else, and then they decided just to stay where they were and live like everyone else. So in the south, in Jerusalem, the temple has been rebuilt under Zerubbabel, and then the reforms of Isaiah and Nehemiah are going on. The walls are being rebuilt. The law and worship is being established. And so while God is working in the south, in Jerusalem, I want to propose to you, he's also working in the north, in Persia, for his people there who chose to stay right where they are. And that's how this story unfolds. Those exiles still living in Persia, God begins to intervene and work for them. That's a little bit of the history. I hope that helps you. The fifth character of this story that I haven't mentioned yet is Esther. Her name means star. That's what her name means, Star. The Bible de depicts her as a woman of inner and outer beauty. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Just a little bit about Esther. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, that had been his niece, for she had neither father or mother. This young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her mother and father died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So Mordecai is raising Esther. And Esther appropriately becomes the star of the show. She is about to become the key character for the survival of all of the Jews living in Persia. And I almost forgot to share another character with you. Well, not really. I didn't really almost forget the sixth character of the story that you'll never read about is the character in this story that's most often overlooked. And I want to propose to you the final character. Again, it's never written in the text. The main character of this star entire story is God. And the reason God is so often overlooked when you read through these 10 chapters in the book of, the book of Esther, the reason God is overlooked is because God is never mentioned. I want to give you some homework, would you? If you get time, make time, would you read the 10 chapters of Esther this week? Esther is the only book in the Bible without any mention of God. There is not a single reference to God in the book of Esther. Nothing, not a most high, not a holy one, not a sovereign one, not 
uh, Elohim, Adonai, Almighty God, zilt, zero, nothing, no mention of God. God, Yahweh, is never referenced to, never even alluded to. Further, there is no word from God in the book of Esther. No word is given to a prophet to declare to the people. No word comes from a prophet. No vision from God. No dream. No voice. Nothing. There's not one prayer uttered in the book of Esther. No comment on the law or temple or worship. Makes you kind of wonder how the book of Esther was ever canonized. However, I want to propose to you this morning that God is the main character. God is working behind the scenes, below the surface, redeeming his people. And some of you here this morning need to hear this and to remember this and to rest in this. Because there's going to be seasons of your life, and you might be going through a season like that today, where you don't see God, you don't hear God, you don't recognize God, but God is working behind the scenes, below the surface in your life, and you do remember who he is and to rest in him and trust him. Time seasons of your life where you're not going to understand life, you're not going to understand why things are transpiring the way they are, why this is occurring, why this is not happening. God is at work. And I would also propose to you the gospel is clearly demonstrated in the book of Esther. I'm almost done. Go back with me to the book of Genesis, would you? There's a couple of verses. The gospel is demonstrated in Esther. Back in the book of Genesis, do you remember in the original creation, in the garden, the Bible says that life is good for Adam and Eve, this couple. They're enjoying fellowship with God, and they're enjoying each other. Everyone is happy in Eden. Everyone is fulfilled in Eden. They're living in a beautiful place, a, a place that is pleasant to the eyes, and it's pleasant to all of their senses. Adam and Eve could not have been more happy. And in the center of this Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, there are two trees mentioned. Do you remember what they are? Two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so to the tree of life, though Adam and Eve, and think about this, Adam and Eve were formed from the dust of the ground and were naturally mortal, God provided this mortal couple access to the tree of life which means they had everything they needed for ongoing physical and spiritual renewal. Therefore, they were able to live on forever, free from disease, free from infirmity, free from decay, because they had access to the tree of life. The second tree was that of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Genesis 3, that, you remember that tree was forbidden. Genesis 3.17, the Bible says God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have access to the tree of life, thus eternal life. They have forbidden access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that restriction was for their own good, to protect them, to protect them from evil and all sin and all of its consequences. And the enemy goes to work, doesn't he? He attacks and he tempts. And he goes to Adam, he goes to Eve, this perfectly fulfilled, happily married couple, and he begins to question God's word. And he begins to distort what God said, creating doubt in their minds, leading them ultimately to deny God and to disobey God. That's a pattern. That's how God works, or the enemy works, to, to destroy us, to weaken us, to create distortion in the word, doubt in the word, ultimately to denial. God, I am not going to do what you say. I know better. I'm going to do my own thing. And you, most of you know the story. The woman takes the fruit. She eats. Then she gives to the man who is with her. He also eats, which is the origin of sin. They decide to deny God's word, to disobey God. And the result is things got ugly. They always do. And they experience consequences. They are exiled. Exiled. Exiled from garden, removed from the place that God had given them, losing access to the tree of life, bringing forth death. And you remember in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, 
Satan took, who took the form of a servant is then cursed by God. Let me read to you Genesis 3, 14 and 15. God says to Satan, you are cursed. Well, he took on the form of a serpent. He said, and on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And then listen, this is the gospel. And I will put enmity. That word enmity means a bloodbath. A bloodbath, and I will create a bloodbath fuel, feud between you and the woman, between your seed, Satan, and her seed, the woman's seed, and her seed will ultimately bring forth the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall bruise your head, crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's the gospel. Theologically, see, how is that the gospel? God is promising there in the, Gen- in the book of Genesis, this is how things are going to go. Satan's offspring, all of his fallen angels, all of his demons who follow and serve him, as well as people who live in their sins, and the woman's offspring, all of her descendants will become enemies and will remain enemies throughout all generations. However, one of Eve's eventual descendants will be a redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this one, this redeemer will come to crush the head of the serpent. While the serpent will work to bruise his seal, a certain reference to the cross, but there is also a reference to all forms of opposition between the two offspring, the offspring of Satan, the offspring of Eve. And from that moment in the garden, once Satan is cursed, he goes to work to bruise or to oppose, to set back, to destroy Everything that's about God, everything that's righteous, everything that God's people try to do for God's glory, Satan will oppose it. An example of that is first seen in the book of Exodus while God's people are multiplying under slave conditions. You remember newborn babies are thrown into the Nile River to thwart God's people. On another occasion, Pharaoh tries to crush God's people by the Red Sea. How did that go? That attempt failed. Another example in the New Testament with the incarnation after Mary's offspring comes into the world and Jesus is born, King Herod orders that all the male babies two years of age, under, age and under are to be killed. And once again, the enemies attempt to destroy the Christ, to, to destroy the Messiah fails. Fast forward to Esther, Satan is still working to bruise God's people, to oppose them. Haman is just another pawn under Satan's control to try to to annihilate God's people and his work. A one-sentence summary, one-sentence summary, a sentence is close to sentence. A summary of the book of Esther could be through God's providence, through God's providence and in keeping with God's promises, He places or positions two people, Mordecai and Esther, to preserve his people and to punish his enemies. God is at work. It's a theme running through the entire Bible. Remember this. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, with God's blessing. That's the theme that runs through the Bible. God has a people living in a certain place, under his rule, to be blessed. How does that apply to the book of Esther? God's people, the Israelites, right, that's who they were, were removed from what place? Their home, the land of promise. God's people removed from God's place. Why were they removed? Because they refused to live under God's rule. And as a result, were exiled by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, now controlled by the Persians. And an act, as an act of God's mercy, according to his faithfulness, God's blessing to his people. The blessing was he did not destroy them. He didn't destroy them, but disciplined them, sent them into exile with the purpose of that discipline, waking them up spiritually to teach them some things. And yet between 60 to 150 years later, after God's people were given freedom, once they were given the opportunity to leave, to go home, back to their spiritual roots, to end their exile, it's sad that most never return. And yet God still works in the story of Esther to preserve them. 
Nothing the enemy attempts to do, no number of Hamans can thwart God's plan. So what does this book reveal about God? Well, I believe it's one of the clearest accounts in all of the Bible of God's providence. Do you remember providence? Pro means ahead, ahead of, or before, and ventia, to see. And so God's providence means God always sees ahead of us, and God always sees to us. God sees ahead of you today. God sees ahead of Mindy and I. I don't know what the future holds for my life. I don't necessarily know what the future holds for Mindy and I. You don't know what your future holds. But God does. There's some references to God in the Psalms where David refers to God as my high tower. Think about a high tower from the perspective of a high tower. You can see from 12,000 feet high in Steamboat, Colorado, you can see a long way off. God's providence means that he sees ahead of you, he sees ahead of your life, and God is faithful to see to you. It's probably one of the clearest pictures in the Bible of God's providence in Esther, though he's never named, never mentioned, never seen, never recognized. God's at work. When you go through life, when I go through life, we as a church family, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'll close, I pray that you'll be encouraged by his word, perhaps even stirred up to remember, to remember God and his goodness and his faithfulness and his love and his grace and his mercy. To remember who God is, and to rest your soul in him. To rest in him. I'd almost guarantee you that most of you this week are going to go through something today, that this week, that rattles your cage a little bit. There's going to be a conversation, a situation, some kind of frustration, something where somebody disappoints you, hurts you, lets you down. It might be in your family. Something's going to happen to rattle your world a little bit. Faith says, God, I'm going to rest in you. And I'm going to consciously choose to make sure that my thoughts are set upon you and who you are and your promises and your character. One commentator said that Romans, there's no better application of Romans 8.28 than there is in the book of Esther. You know Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. That verse certainly applies to Romans 8.28. Matthew Henry says about Esther, though God's name is never mentioned, the finger of God is directing every minute detail for his purposes. And I'm going to do my best over these next several weeks to point out Every coincidence, coincidence in the book of Esther, and there's over 20 of them. It's just a coincidence. It's just a coincidence. It just happens to be a coincidence. No. The finger of God, the hand of God is at work in the lives of his people. I want to urge you to remember that you two and I are exiles. Exiles. The Bible uses different words to describe it. It says, we as God's people, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're exiles right now. We are strangers. We are sojourners. And we forget that this current life is not our home. It's not our home. In fact, the Bible says that we're in the world, but we're not of it. We don't really belong here. We don't belong. 
First Peter says we're a peculiar people, a strange people, God's singular, peculiar people. Because we don't belong here. You know, our values, our perspectives, our views, our decisions, our choices, we're exiles. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege of worship, to visibly observe, participate in as we hear and see you bringing forth new life, seeing those baptized, Lord being reminded of your faithfulness as we sing in unison together, reminded of the gospel that you washed away all of our sins, made us clean, past sins, present sins, future sins. We're all atoned for at the cross. God, I pray that we would be a peculiar people Remembering that we are exiles. This is not our home. Just passing through. Pioneers. Looking for the city to come. We pray that we would live in anticipation of that day. And Father, I pray this morning, if there would be one this morning that's here under the sound of your voice and the witness of the Holy Spirit who is not sure that they're going to heaven, that this would be a day like others before them would pray and place their faith and their trust, all of their confidence and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.